we're off and running. August the 20th, 2017, lecture discussion number 294. And before we return to Judges 13 through 16 and the conclusion, this is the conclusion of Genesis 2, 3, and 4, or this uh, particular series that I've started recently, I uh, got a couple of letters. And so I thought you would like to hear from these people. It's, they're applicable. I think they're not just interest of interest this time, but they actually fit into uh, the uh, current subject, I think, reasonably well. So we'll see if that's true. This is from a Jennifer from Phoenix. I said Phoenix this time instead of Arizona so that you can know why I found this so fascinating. So, Pastor Coach, I was thinking, I know, scary thought. Anywho, my church background, and I have corrected some of it to make it so that it is not too personal. Because she doesn't know that I'm going to read this. Anywho, my church background and the teachers thereof would say that demons can successfully obstruct the receiving of Christ. In other words, a possessed man cannot be saved. And um, that's what they say to her. And they say it about someone that she knows. And that means that he is not able to receive Christ. Well, while talking with myself this morning and thinking on that, wouldn't that make this particular man innocent? The lack of salvation is not his fault. It would be the fault of the demons if you had this particular view. I don't know. Just trying to truly grasp the, the God draws man and man has free will dilemma. I know scripture does not contradict, so there is an answer. But maybe I won't truly grasp it on this side of eternity. By the way, she says. Isn't that funny? It's finally in the 70s in the mornings here in Phoenix. May need my blankie. Because I've been making fun. How can you possibly live in that place? Okay. As you know, let's just take her first. And again, I think this is applicable. I think it fits in currently. So that's why I read it. Now it's, we'll figure out how that is, I hope. As you know, this particular topic is addressed specifically by Christ. Uh, the two demon-possessed men. Now, I know some will say, wait a minute, there's some kind of issue here with Mark and Matthew. Matthew 8, 24 through 32, Mark 5, 1 through 20, talks about two men. Mark only mentions one, asks the obvious question. But two men come to Christ, they are filled with demons. One is saved and one is not by Christ. Which then causes the question, why is only one of the two possessed men saved? And this solves uh, Jennifer's problem immediately, doesn't it? If it's your view, and it's the view, it's very common. These, the churches that she's referring to are very common. It's the predominant view. If it's their view, your view, that a finite demon has the capacity, the capability to withstand the omnipotence of the infinite God. <sighs> Note how I frame the question. It, is a, it has a rhetorical element to it. I hope that alone exposes the premise as patently absurd. But if it would grant the hypothesis, a demon can stop Christ from saving somebody. Let's say that's, let's go ahead and say that's possible. It, it's not. I can't even utter the words. It's ridiculous. But a large faction of churches believes that, and you run into them all the time, and they teach it, and it's very dangerous. Because what does it do to Christ? 
If that were true, grant the premise, then neither of those two men that came to Christ with demons could have been saved, and one was. But, but that's not the question, is it? I have two men, both in a demonic situation, both of them in, under demonic control, and one of them is saved. What's the question? Why only one? Was one incapable of being saved? Because the demon uh, was able to fight off the omnipotent, infinite Christ? Or unwilling? In other words, where is the will of the man here? Why did one cry out to Christ for salvation and the other not? I hope you recognize this is exactly the same, same situation as what? Crucifixion. I have three crosses. I have equal distance. I have an equilateral triangle. Opposite angles are equal. Two lost men, equidistant from God himself, being crucified with the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things, their creator, and one is saved, one is remembered by the rememberer, and the other one perishes. What is the distinction? What caused that situation? Exactly the same as the two demon-possessed men. Okay, next is Sherry. And Sherry writes from where she... She is in the hillbilly safari. I don't know if you remember her. She's in a motor home, and she writes every now and then when she can. So let's read this. Uh, She's so polite. To Pastor Stephen Chronister. Sounds... Really uh, impressive. I wonder who this guy is. Since you are so swamped, I thought I'd go ahead and shoot you yet another letter because I'm a helper. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, I've been trying to get my tiny noodle wrapped around this. How does one not despair? This peace God gives, I understand that the burden is light and we have peace because we do not have to continually wonder if we are saved or not, that Jesus is the hope we have and we don't have to continually uh, gotta make, earn salvation. That's not possible as other religions would have. This is the peace and light burden, right? The thing is, I still despair. Tremendously. Not for me. Who cares? For those I love, and I know that only God can know the heart, but for all intents and purposes, those who appear to not choose God's mercy, there are a select few, not everyone, I'm not really altruistic, but those select few I would trade my salvation for if God so required. But of course, I have death blood, so it wouldn't work. And of course, our great almighty Jesus God would never, thankfully, require such a thing. He also won't allow it. I added that part. Because he does it himself, because he's the only one who can, which leads me back to despair. And then she goes on and finishes with this. That doesn't finish. It's in the middle. So this makes me think of Adam and Eve. How did Eve know she was deceived? And there's two great great questions there. Why does one not despair, and how did Eve know that she had been deceived? When did Eve know she was deceived? As you also know, I have the opinion that Lot's wife is an example of a woman who illustrates Sherry's uh, letter here, her question, as does Moses. Moses is singled out because he's willing to blot himself out for all of Israel. 
he despaired over Israel. And Sherry's question is, is why do I despair? He wanted to be a substitute. Lot's wife, she like the saved thief, is remembered by Christ himself. The omniscient rememberer remembers her. Being remembered by Christ is to be written in the book of life. Lot's wife did not fear her own eternal destiny. Why not? She had the same understanding that Sherry had. She was saved and she knew it. So what did she fear? What made her go back? You've heard me say this over and over again. As for Eve, either Adam intervened, in other words, Adam convinced her that she was deceived. What are the chances of that? That was a joke. I'm glad one person laughed. Yay, me. You're going to have to come to the front row. You've laughed in two consecutive lectures, and that's fantastic. (laughs) Ah, bring this queen. Notice no one sits in the front row anymore. <laughs> Wonder why that is. Yeah. What could cause that? Anyway, don't get that don't get close to old people. Did Adam <laughs> convince her that she was deceived, or did her death state that she was now in? Or was it a combination? But here's the whole point of Sherry's letter letter, whether she knows it or not. A deceived per- person became undeceived. That's really cool. I make the point that she testified against Satan. A deceived person became undeceived. Who's watching? How many people are on the earth when a deceived person became undeceived? Two. How many angels are there watching this? Millions and millions and millions. So I have millions and millions of angels see a deceived human being become undeceived. What did they think of that? How many did they know of? Okay, I'm going to finish uh, Sherry. She has favorite t-shirts. She says, my favorite Cliffside t-shirt's not yet in existence. Cliffside, a hard sell. Beware the ranting idiot. That's fantastic. I've called myself the ranting idiot for many, many years now. And I should I should uh, have a t-shirt. She's right. Cliffside. Mucus in the front, dingleberries in the back. Just in case you think they don't listen to us, they really do. Bill would be so proud if, if he heard that. Anyway. Okay, obviously with no more time for the issues of Sherry and, and Jennifer, I just wanted to get them out there. But we're going to return to them soon, soon a relative term. But the issues are the issues. By that I mean we are in the midst of Gen D, that's what she calls herself, and Sherry's questions. And then, and again, I think they're valuable uh, to where we are at this time. <sighs> okay. Hopefully in the future, um, you, you'll see how they apply to Genesis 3 and Samson. Now, where was I? Last Sunday, we began the concrete work of Samson, um, the compaction, uh, pouring the footings and tying the steel. It's number five for those of you on the Internet. We use number five uh, steel horizontals and uprights. J-steel, 42-inch tails, nine-inch uh, uh, hooks, if you want to know. That's Alaska. 
So that's where we were last week in an allegorical form. Today we're going to form the walls, we're going to shoot the grade strips and call for concrete, and we'll see what happens. At the conclusion of Lecture 293, I threw out a a few questions, not a lot, but a few. I asked this, why didn't Samson restart his Nazarite oath? Because he doesn't. That becomes very important to the discussion. Because those who were, who were here last week, the reason I asked that question, let me count. I need one hand, that's all. Okay, there's four or five of you that were here last Sunday. You will, you will remember Numbers 6, 9 through 12. Let me put that on the board. Number 6 is equal to Judges 13 through 16. That's important to know. You cannot, you weren't here last week, you cannot figure out what's going on with Samson without number six. And then you will not figure out how Samson applies to Genesis 3 without number six and Judges 13 through 16. When a Nazarite or a Nazarene is defiled by contact with death, he has to, re- he has to restart his days of separation. He has to return to the beginning and start all over his days of separation. His days of separation, that's what it's called, is a period of time at which he has been dedicated. Now, that didn't apply to Samson, but that's how it is for most Nazarites. They have a period of time at, during which they're a Nazarite. If they come in contact with death, they have to start the period of time all over again. That is Numbers 6, 9 through 12. In the case of Samson, he was a Nazarite, or a Nazarene, from womb to death, womb to grave, Judges 13.7. Notice immediately, when I say womb, what do you say back? I say womb, you say, here we are at a basketball game, right? If you say, if I say womb, you say grave, because he is womb to grave. And that's childbirth. He, childbirth, as I've said before, is equated with death. Here in Samson, we see this connectivity of childbirth and death again. Right here. Womb to death. Samson uh, has this over him. And it uh, affects everything that he thinks. Also notice that Samson is Samson before He is seen to be Samson by anyone else. In other words, God proclaims Samson to be Samson in the womb. That's not good news for people who think otherwise. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. We have yet to contemplate this positioning of childbirth and physical death, but we have to. That's Genesis 3, isn't it? That's Eve. That's the curse on the woman, childbirth. But we're going to do it, we have to do it, soon, which is a relative term. Anyway, Samson is a Nazarite from womb to death, meaning his days of separation were how many days? They were the entirety of his days. So all of his days are, he is a Nazarite. Christ himself is the Nazarene. He says so. I am Jesus of Nazarene. Or I am the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. That is a reflection of... These two things, Samson and number six. That is the prophecy that is fulfilled there. And he is, this is God himself, he is the Nazareth, or Nazarite. 
not a Nazarite. He is the one that, to whom all Nazarites, or all Nazarenes, all from Nazareth, that are dedicated to the Lord, point to or portray. He's the Nazareth, or the Nazarite, gosh, can't say it. He is the Nazarite from the first to the last, just like Samson. Womb to death for Samson, first to last for Christ. He will always be a Nazarite. Revelation 1.11, from before time to eternity. You really get the benefit of that when you see the Hebrew term. We say Alpha and Omega. They do not. They use their, they use their terms from their, from the Hebrew alphabet. And it has a much more significant exposure, I guess would be the right word to use. You can see more, glean more from the Jewish aspect of it. In any event, Christ is the Nazarite from before time to eternity. Samson's womb to death is a depiction of Christ's outside of time. It's a portrait of Christ's inseparability from his deity. Christ is always God. He's never not God. The Nazarite vow, it's, as you know, if you were here last week, Paul, five of you, the, the, the Nazarite vow is called the wonder of the Nazarite. It's not really called the vow or the oath. It is called the wonder of the, of the Nazarite. In other words, it is very difficult to understand. Well, the reason that it is called the wonder is because it is picturing for us the eternity of Jesus Christ, the Godhood of Christ. That is the wonder aspect of it. I receive many letters, as you know, that attempt to convince me that Christ can be removed from his Godhood severed from the triune godhood. They tell me all the time that they believe it. And the Nazaretic wonder, or the wonder of the Nazaretic uh, vow, if you will, that's redundant, is another refutation of this nonsense, this teaching that Christ can be separated from his deity. It's kenosis theory, and it is not clear thinking. It's a passion-based projection. It's, uh, it's anthropomorphic. It's humanity being applied to Christ. It has absolutely no bearing at all. It's extremely popular. The largest churches in the country believe this stuff. It drives me nuts. I've gotten in trouble for things, but I did not that time. That's where I go, yay me, when I watch the video, which I seldom do because... The guy, the guy doing the lectures is not attractive. I don't know if you noticed that. I'm barely understanding you. I'm not particularly fond of his techniques, so I don't watch. But if I did, I'd be proud of him right there. The, I want you to see the eternity of Christ here. If Christ has an eternity, just ponder for a second, just a minute, just spend a minute. Think about what's required to be eternal before time. Before, before time to eternity. He, he's, the eternity of him is his infinity. I'm asking you to know infinity. And he says, John 10.30, John 10.38, John 7.29. He says that he is in infinity and that he is the same as infinity and that he knows infinity. What's required to know infinity? How much infinity is in infinity? 
How much do you have to know to know infinity? How much do you have to, how big are you to be in infinity? He's the same as infinity, he says, John 7.29. And he says it all the time. Only infinity can know infinity. Only omniscience can know omniscience. How many thoughts does God have at any instant? Christ says, I know all of them. I am in them. So do not separate him. Understand that the Nazarite oath or the Nazaretic wonder is, an, is trying to teach us it is a portrait of his infinity. Anyway, I digress. Again, beware the ranting idiot. Okay. Samson had contact with death, and he did not restart his period of separation. Why not? Any other Nazarite that has contact with death has to restart his Nazaretic period of separation. Samson did not do it. How do I know he didn't do it? First problem. How do you restart a womb-to-death Nazaretic period of separation? I can't go back in the womb. can't go back to the beginning. How do I start it? Restarted, I'm sorry. In other words, say a 30-day period could easily be reestablished. It can be. How exactly is a womb-to-death cycle terminated except by death? Samson's Nazarite, Nazarite status, his, the Nazarite wonder, could not be ended except by death. However, could have Samson willfully submitted to the cleansing provision of a Nazarite contaminated by contact with death. That's number 6, 9 through 12. Ah, Maybe I should read it again for you guys that weren't here. Let's do that really fast. We will try to be fast, because I, I can tell, unless you were here last week, this is not easy to understand. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, if anyone dies very suddenly besides a Nazar- beside a Nazarite, and he defiles his consecrated head, if the Nazarite touches the dead person, then he's defiled, he's no longer consecrated. He shall then shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for the Nazarite because the Nazarite sinned in regard to that corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering, but the former day shall be lost because the separation was defiled. So in other words, I could keep going, but he's supposed to restart. But Samson didn't restart. Did Samson come in contact with corpses? Yeah, how do we know that? He's the one that killed them. He killed thousands of them, but he did not restart. How do I know he didn't restart? So, number 6, 9 through 12, that's the atonement for committed sin stipulation. And even though Samson had a death only by dismissal from his, had, had as death only, he had to die in order to be dismissed from his vow, it seems obvious he could have, when he contacted a corpse, he could have done number 6, 9 through 12. But he didn't choose to do it. Why not? 
Well, we have lots of reasons. One, he knew stuff. He knew not to do it. I can prove that next week. Judges 16, 17. Okay, I proved it this week. Because number 6, 9 through 12 required that Samson's head be shaved by a laser, by a laser, by a razor. So that's what it seems to require. And Samson had no, in any event, he had no intention of allowing that to happen. He didn't do it. Because Samson understood something astonishing. Now I want to know how he figured it out. How did he learn it? Certainly he knew what Christ had said to his mother, Judges 13.5. Should we read that? Here's what Christ himself says to his mother. I have to make a list. Here's what she says. Or here's what Christ says to her. Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Behold. A son. She was barren, one of the six barren women, one of the seven miraculous births. And no razor shall come upon his head. This is God saying this. Keep that in mind. Who's God? Is he omniscient? Is he before time? Is he outside of time? Did he create time? Is he infinite? That's who's saying this. Is he guessing? No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Okay, I reread that for the visitor. Let the record show there's no visitor. Behold, a miraculous birth of a son, no razor, a Nazarite from birth, from the womb, sorry, and he will be a deliverer. Now, last week, I could not spell deliverer. So I practiced this week. Every now and then, my mind disappears. I am aware that it could happen with more frequently, more frequency. I'm expecting it. I'm not going to know when it happens. Last week, it seemed like it happened to me. I'm staring at that. I had no idea what I was looking at. That freaked me out. So what did I do? That's right. Frank Moore died coke. And it worked because I'm back here today. I shouldn't say things like that. It scares my family, but... Uh, they're going to have to deal with this. <laughs> okay. Samson would know these five things. That five, one, two, three, four, five, six. He would know those six things. He would know that he is a miraculous birth, that he's a son, that no razor, no, he's a Nazarite to God. He's from the womb. He's a Nazarite and he's the deliverer of, of Israel. He knows those things. He would know the angel of the Lord, God himself, the man of God, Judges. 13.11, His father, Samson's father, knows this is God that says this. His parents knew it was God. Samson would know it was God that said it. And I assigned last Sunday at the end of the lecture, I asked you to go through the Samson story, 13 to 16, list every verse in Judges 13 to 16 where Samson violates his oath of separation. You're going to need more paper. Because Samson... 
pretty much takes a shredder to his Nazarite promise. He beats it with a stick. There's not much left of it. With the singular exception of that which is declared specifically by Christ. No razor. This one, he sets aside. Now, I don't have time to read, to read Judges, I'm sorry, number six, but when you read number six, you will find out what a Nazarite can and can't do. Grapes, don't shave the head, no contact with death. That sums it up. No razor shall come upon his head. Omniscient God says this, the creator of time who can see all of time at the same time, does he know that no razor will come upon the head of Samson? Yes, he does. Does that make it so? There you are, talking about Jennifer's letter now. Right? Samson knows not to do this. How did he figure it out? How does he know? Did he try it? Did he shave his head once to see what would happen? Would most teenage boys do that? Every single one. They put some dumb pattern in it. Prance around like there's somebody. But Judges 16 through 17 says he didn't do it, ever. But how much other experimentation did you think Samson undertook? Let's imagine his trial and error anatomy project. Did he eat a grape? Oh, yeah. He went after the grapes heavy. He had some wine. He killed a man. He killed an animal that, with his bare hands. He killed thousands of men. He lied. He married a Philistine. Blah, 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 blah. He went crazy. Wouldn't do this. But everything else, didn't care. Now, if you've read the Samson story, can you envision Samson drinking wine to excess? Duh. Can you see him completely incoherently crocked, blotto wasted? Yes. He, he exhibits no control. He's routinely in a stupor. That violates his Nazaretic oath. Doesn't affect him. Doesn't restart. Because to restart means he violates that and he's not going to do it. How does he know? What was the consequences to him being drunk all the time? Well, eventually he got his eyes poked out. Gets him captured a lot. But let me put it, let me rephrase that. What did Samson deem the effect to be of violating his Nazaritic oath by drinking wine, eating grapes, and doing other, the other defilements that he did? The answer is nothing. Samson saw and felt no aftermath of his actions that he considered negative. His drunken his drunkenness to paralysis, his strength, his power did not, was not affected. It still remained. Contact with death, strength, power remains intact. No repercussions as far as he's concerned. So, he knew this was different. How do you know that? Why of the three, don't drink wine, don't eat anything of a grape, no vinegar, get, stay away from that stuff. Don't touch a dead body. No contact with, 
with death, he knew those did not affect him. This one, he knew did. How did? When did he know it? That's his secret. When did he figure his secret out? How did he, if ever, reason this through? Reason what the resultant would be if he put a razor to his head? Think about that for a while while I move along. Was it process of elimination? So, well, I did these two. No problem. I'm not going to do that one because that worries me. So I'll leave it alone. He never dared shave his head. Now, before I go to bring honey and honey bees back to the equation, why does the cutting of his hair end the supernatural strength of Samson? There's a better question. Does the cutting of his hair end the supernatural strength of Samson? Obviously, the razor shall not come upon his head. Did the razor come upon his head? Christ said the razor would not come upon his head. But the razor came upon his head. Did you think when I said that, that Christ was wrong? No. Why isn't Christ wrong? Work that out. Because Christ isn't wrong. The razor shall not come upon his head. That's accentuated by Christ himself. And therefore, we should investigate the subsequent intensity that it carries, Judges 13.5. He says, Behold, no razor, deliverer of Israel. Christ establishes the connectivity as he does all of Judges 16. But to repeat the question, is it the cutting of the hair or is it that God departs from Samson when the hair is cut? and returns when the hair is reestablished. What does the hair symbolize, in other words? Did Samson fully understand this? I say, yes, he did. Okay, now on to the hard part. That was all the easy part. Here comes... What I think is the essential pieces that solve Samson for you. Did you see free will in the infinity of God in that discussion? Certainly it's there. If you don't, see me afterwards. Eat first. So, this is what God says in Exodus 3.8. So, I have come down to deliver. There's that deliver theme again. He did not say, I have come down to betray them. He said, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with, with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites but let's just stop there. Exodus 3.8, and what we're going to say is important to Samson's story is milk and honey. You solve milk and honey, you're in a pretty good place. It's long been assumed, let me put my glasses back down so I can see how the time's doing. Good, doing great. It's long and often been assumed by Western culture, our culture, that milk and honey refers to milk and honey. Do you think milk and honey refers to milk and honey? 
Probably wrong. It obviously does not refer to cow milk and bee honey. It's not cow milk and bee honey. At least not in the Middle East. There are three choices for each one. For honey, it can either be date honey, fig honey, or it can be, can be bee honey. I beseech you. I behoove you. Behold. We could do this for hours. But those are your three choices. Which one did you think it was when he said milk and honey? Did you think it was bee honey? Because if you did, oops, almost always it is date honey. They still make honey from dates. Now over here it can either be cow milk or it can be goat milk. Now here's my favorite. It can be white wine. So this is a land filled with wine and dates. Goats and figs, cows and bees. How many combinations do you have? Use your phones. You don't have to do math anymore. You just need a phone. So, which one is it? The overwhelming evidence is that it is goat and dates. I should put dates uh, and figs. Three sources, and it can be either dates, figs, or honeybees. Date, honey, fig, honey, bee, honey. Cow milk, goat milk, or white wine. In order to properly analyze Samson's riddle, remember he has a riddle, doesn't he? And the giving of honey from bees to the father and the mother. Bee honey from the rotting corpse of a lion, because he tears a lion apart. And swarm of bees comes in, as you know, from last week and the previous week, and out of that dead corpse, and he's a Nazarite, he brings out bee honey, and he gives it to his father and his mother. In order to properly understand that, you have to know that it is bee honey there, which is not milk and honey. Milk and honey is date honey. This is bee honey. We're going to get into the next few weeks on whether or not bee honey is kosher. Do you know how bee honey is made? Would you like me to go over it so that we can have some during the buffet? No. You don't want to know how this is made. You really It's an enzyme breakdown, regurgitation, blah, blah, blah. So, do the Jews consider it kosher? They do. They fight over it. Some don't, some do. It's because the, the honey is not made by the bee. The bee takes the nectar and regurgitates it, so the nectar is in that position. An enzyme in the bee's um, accumulation system causes the honey to develop. So they will say to you, because the bee does not produce the honey, for example, a, ca- a camel is often used to illustrate this, or, or take a pred- any predator. Well, take a take a uh, a buzzard that eats dead animals. A buzzard that eats dead animals will lay a buzzard egg, right? Well, that egg is not kosher because it is produced by the animal. 
the honey or the nectar is not produced by the bee. The enzymes from the bee and the regurgitation is what makes the honey. So they consider process different. Milk from a from a camel, for example, is not kosher because the camel is not kosher. And the camel is making the milk. Cow milk is kosher. Goat milk, kosher. I hope that makes sense. We'll get into regurgitation or vomiting by bees next week, or not on the 10th of September, so that we will have all of that down. But it helps you accurately and correctly determine the gravity of what Samson did, the symbolism of this true event. This is a literally true event. He actually tore a lion apart, threw it off to the side, went on his way, came back. There's honeybees in it, which is, in fact, ridiculous. Shouldn't have, it's obviously a miraculous event because they wouldn't have gone into it. He takes that honey out by his hand and he feeds it to his mother and father without telling them that. And we need to know that that was bee honey and not date honey and not fig honey. And this will eventually cause us to have a discussion to veer into the feast day of first fruits. Because if it is, if milk and honey is wine, wine is made from grapes and honey is made from dates, then I'm talking about fruit and it's first fruit. See how I got there? Obviously, we cannot wade into this today. There's way too much to sift through. I just, for today, realize, I want you to realize and recognize that generally speaking, when you read a reference in the Bible to, uh, uh, to referring to honey, it's almost always date honey. It's really rare that it is bee honey. So start getting bee honey out of your head, which makes Judges 14.8 all the more exceptional. And behold, a swarm of bees and bee honey. Behold, behold, a swarm of bees went into, this is amazing, went into a corpse and, and formed up honey inside that. That's an incredible. It's not date honey, it's bee honey. It becomes critical information as the behold suggests. And Samson, again, took the bee honey and he ate it. He's a Nazarite. He's eating bee honey from a dead corpse that he killed. And then he gave it to his father and mother, and they also ate the bee honey, Judges 14.9. That's why I keep saying, somebody took something and gave who and ate it and gave it to somebody else, a man and a woman, Genesis 3, and they ate it. Did he tell them it was bee honey? No. Did they know it was? Maybe. They also ate. Boy, that is Genesis 3 language, wouldn't it? It would be wise for us to know the impact of this act of Samson with respect to his Nazaretic oath. Otherwise, the solution to the riddle that comes next is going to be tough to figure out. Samson does seemingly these strange things. Honey, riddles, foxes. What does he do with foxes? He takes foxes. He has 300 of them. He, he captures 300 foxes. He's an extraordinary man. He's unbelievable. We have no idea what this is like, what he can do. He catches 300 foxes. Try it yourselves. Start now. Then he ties, he ties, essentially ties them all together and ties fire to them, to their tails, and he sends them through and he burns down all the Philistine fields. 
What's the obvious question? What happened to the foxes? Everybody always asks me, what happened to the foxes? Probably not good. Maybe they ran away from the fire and and they were able to put out their own individual fire tail. Maybe they ran into the river. Let's hope for the best. Well, one thing's for sure. (laughs) You know, I work on these jokes all day long. And so when they work, I'm just thrilled. They're not great, I know that. But they still make it makes me happy. (laughs) Why did he do that? He has this. He does these seemingly strange things, but I want you to start looking at them and recognizing that they're building one upon the other. When I first went through Samson originally, many, many years ago when I was a young man, when I mean young, I mean really young, I did notice that, uh, as I am so inclined to do, the order of what Samson does. And I recognized immediately that the order has great significance. It helps me figure out what's happening and why it's happening. It's cause and effect. It's traceable. You can figure out what he's doing. And I assumed, as is also my habit, that the order of things is purposed. There's a building of pieces on one upon the other. These things really happened. But remember, God is in charge of this. Do you see Jennifer's letter again? Samson is doing these things by his own free will, but they're in God's order. And you can figure out what God is doing here. They're parts of a whole. The foxes come before the killing of Samson's wife and his father-in-law. I'll just give you a little bit of the order so you can start to think it through. You've got a couple of weeks. So I have foxes burning down a field. And then the Philistines respond. They kill Samson's wife and his, and her, and her father, his father-in-law. That's what happens. So how are those two related? They are related. He burns their fields down. They kill his wife and his father-in-law. What's the obvious question? Why don't they kill Samson's family? Because he's got brothers. He's got a father and mother. They don't do it. Why don't they do it? He takes. He gets a little bit upset about that. What's he do? He finds a jawbone. And he wipes out a whole bunch of them. So he has, there's a great slaughter. You can start figuring out how many great slaughters there are. How many great slaughters are there? There's three. I'll help you. So there's the first great slaughter of the Philistines, and then the men of Judah come, and they, and they want, they end up delivering Samson to the Philistines, then there's the second great slaughter of the Philistines. Samson gets thirsty. He tears down the gates of the city. All of that is in order. And you start looking at the order. You realize I've got two great slaughters and a tearing down of the gates of the city at midnight. We should read that. Because last week we read the other stuff, so if you missed it, um, this is where we are today. Judges 16, 1 through 4. Now Samson went to Gaza. Oh, isn't that interesting? And saw a harlot there and went into her, or went into her. When the Gazites were told, 
Samson has come here. They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. So they surrounded him and they went and waited by the gate of the city. Why did they do that? Keep in mind who Samson is. How many men has he slaughtered? We've had two great slaughters already. And now he's inside of Gaza visiting a, a harlot, prostitute. How's his Nazaritic vow going right now? Probably drunk. But they're scared of him, aren't they? He kills them by, he picks up a bone and kills thousands of them. They can't stop him. Just imagine a thousand men coming after one guy and he kills them all. What has that done to the psyche of the Philistines? And so they surround him. They surround where he is. It's nighttime. And they go by the gates of the city. So I have somebody being surrounded. It's nighttime. And I have gates of the city. Does that sound familiar? Okay. I hope it does, because I read, I read her, uh, Sherry's letter. Now, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her, and when the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. Why won't they kill him at night? How about killing him in the daytime? Has that gone really well for these guys? No, so what the difference here? <laughs> but that's their plan. And Samson lay low till midnight. He obviously could tell thousands of people are surrounding him. He laid low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. After that, Delilah. So there's your order again. After that, Samson loves Delilah. I want you to pay attention to that order. I can't stress enough what happened here. He grabbed the city gates. How heavy are these gates? How tall are them? This is a pretty good sized city. He grabs the gates and he pulls them up, puts them on his back, and walks. He doesn't kill anybody. You can imagine, we are waiting for daylight. That's our plan. Samson, it's midnight, it's dark, can't see a thing because there's hardly any light. Might be some moonlight, might be some starlight, but mostly it's pitch black. All of a sudden, the gate's gone. Um, He could have killed them all, but he doesn't. He takes their gate, rips it off. You know how far they think he went? The most common view is that he went 37 miles. I'll bet you nobody chased him. Guarantee nobody chased him. They certainly didn't want to see, they didn't want him to go in the daytime. Why do they want to attack at night? Think it through. If you attack him in the daytime, he sees you. You see him, he sees you. So we have all kinds of problems. If he's loose and it's daytime, bad news. We've got to have him contained. So you might see him, you might surround him, but if he's free, we got big problems. Anyway, 
If he did go 37 miles, and I think that that's probably correct, he goes up a hill, he threw it down into a valley, and the people who were captivated, in other words, the people that were held captive by this gate system, there's no gate anymore. And they can't get out of that city. Probably for the first time in many, many years. And they get loose. He frees people. Instead of killing people, he frees people. So I want you to look at and I have gates here. Samson, the Nazarite, tears open a gate. The Nazarite, Christ, tears open a gate, doesn't he? I have this, this complementary relationship. Why not kill all the men who are waiting in ambush? I suspect they didn't chase after him. How fast does Samson move with these very heavy gates? I mean, think about how a man that could pick them up, they're thousands of pounds. Rips them out, runs off with them. 37 miles, throws them into a valley after climbing a hill. How fast did he move? A lot faster than me and Lori with the gravel. Let's see. I got all that back together. <laughs> Finally, last thing I'm going to say because it's time for buffet. The Philistines get control of him because I've lost the razor to the head thing. We're going to have to figure out what really happened here. Why does he no longer have any strength? What did they do to him? They poke his eyes out. That was a very common technique. They had a device to take the eyes out of a human being. It was almost like a sharpened spoon. So they blinded him. They were really happy that he was blind. Excuse me. Let's try that again. Uh, that's cool. Special effects. They were really happy that he was blind. Why were they so sure that his blindness was going to be a good thing for them? They didn't want him to see them. Very important to them. Didn't work out, did it? They put more faith in his blindness. They disregarded his hair. And they put all the energy into his blindness. They thought by making him blind, they would be safe. And that led, of course, to the third slaughter of Samson. And he is led by the hand. Someone has to tell him where to go so that he can kill these people. He's killing Delilah, too. She's there. She's the richest person in the city now. So she's there. And he knows it. But a little boy leads him. A young lad leads him. And the young lad... Who's the young lad? Does the young lad die? Samson dies. Where's the young lad? Does the young lad know he's going to die when he's leading Samson by the hand? September the 10th, we will figure all of that out. You have two weeks to prepare for your test.